Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, May the 20th, 2022. It is currently 4.21 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, if you were listening to our live broadcast yesterday, you know we started, I guess this is going to turn into somewhat of a mini-series called 30 Life Principles. And the reason I decided to do this is, well, we have a series called Eye on Christianity, where I'm always looking at what's going on in the world of Christianity, and then we talk about it, usually with somewhat of a a critical eye, somewhat, I, I tend to look at things that's happening in the Christian world Sometimes critically, sometimes very cynically. I'm I'm a cynic. I'm I'm very cynical. I, I yeah. There's a lot of things going on in the world of Christianity that sometimes I'm just like, what is happening? And I'm always fascinated when certain things within the Christian world kind of reaches this really interesting level where there's all of the these products being sold going with this idea whether it was the prayer of jabez whether it was the purpose driven life the purpose driven church whatever it is these at certain times certain things rises to this level and they kind of they kind of become like a kind of a a christian culture phenomenon right there's books there's study guides there's dvds there's t-shirts there's coffee mugs i mean it's just it turns into a you know a merchandising machine. I mean, the, the Christian uh, publishing world, the Christian industrial complex gets behind it and boom, and there's conferences and it's just, and I'm always, I always sit back when these things kind of reach that level and go, wow, uh, what, what, what was it? And I'm, and, and I know I may be cynical and I know I may be critical, but I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm fascinated by it because you like, I'll look at the content and I'll be like, so what, what is it about this particular content that like everyone just went crazy for? Like everyone was buying it, everyone was reading it. This church was, you know, using it in a study, a, a study as a study guide or for small groups or for Sunday school. And this church, and this church, and this church. In many cases, it crosses denominational lines, and you're like, what? So what was it about this particular study that that captured so many people's attention? We've seen it with. The Experiencing God study, again, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven life, the prayer of Jabez, we could just go on and on and on. But there is one that I constantly see if I if I get a one of the catalogs from the Christian book distributors or, or, or just different times, I'll see it. And it's the 30 Life Principles by Charles Stanley. There is the 30 Life, there's the Life Principles Bible. There's the 30 Life Principles book. There's the 30 Life Principles Bible study guide. I mean, there's just so, so much. Uh, I, I don't know how many different spinoffs there have been, but there's a lot. And these 30 Life Principles are supposedly the principles that, been, that have been taught by Charles Stan, Stanley across 50 years of ministry. So that's fascinating, right? Here's a, a very famous pastor, and by no means am I saying I agree with all of his doctrine or theology, just seeing a very famous pastor who put together a study that obviously became somewhat successful from a merchandising perspective because they kept adding, oh, look, here's the book. Here's the study guide. Here's the Bible. And, and well, people obviously were buying them. And they're, they, I mean, you can still find all of the stuff everywhere today. And it's like, so what? 
What made this so fascinating? Now, one, I'm fascinated because it's just, here's someone who's been preaching for 50 years, whether I agree or disagree, and he thinks, these are the life principles that every Christian needs. These are the life principles. So so right there, I'm as I was saying, I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in why so many people were drawn to them. So originally, the, the my original plan was, hey, you know what? Let's just grab the first life principle. I'll grab the books, and we'll just kind of work through the first principle. And about the second I hit the go live button yesterday, I decided, you know what? I'm, go- I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to change my mind, and I'm just going to, well, turn on the microphone, and I don't know how many different parts this will take, but I'm just going to kind of say, here's these five life principles, and here's some of my thoughts, here's some of my criticism, here's some of my questions for them. Kind of play the devil's advocate and see if it sparks a lot of, uh, well, conversation. Because I, again, I am interested about why he thinks these life principles are so important. So yesterday, we looked at five of them. We looked at five of them yesterday. Here are the five we looked at. Again, these are from Charles Stanley, has 30 life principles. And by, again, by no means am I saying that I agree with them. I just, I'm just, this is one of those studies that again, rises to this very interesting level where there's just merchandising happening and every, and, and, and it, obviously a lot of different churches are using it or have used it in the past. I don't think it's as, as relevant as it once was, but I'm just still fascinated by them. So we're not looking at them because I agree. We're looking at them because I'm somewhat like, so wait, what, what's, what's up with this? And here are the five that we looked at in part one. Number one, our intimacy with God, his highest priority for our lives, determines the impact of our lives. So the approach to this one is seemingly to say that the most important life principle is your intimacy with God and your intimacy with God is God's highest priority for you and that determines the impact of your life. In other words, if you want your life to have impact, you need to be have intimacy with God because that's God's highest priority for you. And we didn't, you know, we didn't go through the book looking at everything they have to say, but when we I started asking some I think very important questions. What do they mean by intimacy with God? What do they mean by that? Because it seems to say what this seems to be saying is that, look, you, right there, whoever, whoever's listening to me now, whoever you are, wherever you're sitting, if you're, you know, if you're driving your car, sitting at work, at your kitchen table, wherever you are, sitting on the couch, wherever you are right now, this principle seems to say, you, you need to care about having intimacy with God because it's God's highest priority of your life. And if you are not pursuing intimacy with God, if you're not doing everything you can to be intimate intimate with God, then you're not fulfilling God's priority for your life and your life is not going to have an impact. So what do you need to do to have greater intimacy with God? Now, the minute I describe it that way, I'm hoping you're hearing something. This is very law-based. This is what you need to do, you need to do, you need to do, you need to do, you need to do. Now, I think a very gospel-based idea would be, well, intimacy is God, is something God has accomplished for us because he sent his son to save us. And by faith, we are made a child of God and nothing can separate me from the love of God. And so I, I am connected. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. So in one sense, in my position, 
uh, there is an intimacy with God that cannot be t- taken apart. Now, in my practice, yes, I do need to draw close to God. Yes, we could talk about fellowship here. Are they are they just focusing on the fellowship part? It still seems very law-based. And again, we could raise the question, is God's highest priority intimacy with him? Is God's, high, is God's highest priority for my life is that I have intimacy with him? Or is God's highest priority is that is that is his glory? Right. So we talked a little bit. Of, I don't want to go back through each one of them, but we, we raised some of those questions. Number two was obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Once again, though, the life principle is like, you obey God. Don't worry about the consequences. You just obey God. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad life principle, but once again, it's very law-based, not gospel-based, all right? We could argue that Christ obeyed the law for me because he did. And could we could we rewrite these principles from a more gospel-based perspective? We could have that discussion. Number three. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Now, I, li- I like number three. I really do like number three. In fact, I kind of want to go through some of the study on number three. Um, we may do that. My, my plan here was to go to number six. We may work on number three today. We may, well, let's just go through five. We were going to move on to number six because number six, I'm completely perplexed about. And we were going to work through the study guide, the different books I have here pertaining to this to see exactly what they're trying to say. We may go back to number three because I think it may just be maybe a very edifying and, and beneficial. So, but let's go back through them again. Number one, our intimacy with God, his highest priority for our lives determines the impact of our lives. Number two, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Number three, God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Number four, the awareness of God's presence energizes us for our work. Now, number four, I had lots of issues with because what does it mean to be aware of God's presence? How, 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 this, this is going with feelings and emotions, and we talked all about some of the issues with number four. Let me read it to you again. The awareness of God's presence energizes us for our work. And I pointed all the possible problems with that. Number five, God does not require us to understand his will. Just obey it, even if it seems unreasonable. And I, I pointed out some of my issues with probably what how Charles Stanley is going to approach number five, because I know his teaching on God's will. Uh, remember, I was a graduate from Charles Stanley's, uh, I guess, Institute for Christian Living, I think is what it was called. Uh, I graduated from, or I received a certificate, whatever you called it. I guess it would be considered, I graduated. I finished the course study for Charles Stanley's Institute for Christian Living. So I know his view on, on God's will, and I, I have some major issues with the way he approaches it. So remember, I rewrote it. God does not require us to understand all of the Bible. Just obey it, even if it seems unreasonable. And I think that that's a good principle. All right. So those were those were the five. Now today, the the original goal, right when I the the our intro kicked off, my mind was already made up. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to read number six, 
And we're just going to, I'm going to tap on it. And we're just right here on my screen. And we're just going to work through what the study guide says and see if we can figure out what they mean. I'm going to give this one to you. You can just write this one down and put a question mark next to it because I'm still a little perplexed by it. Here's how it's written. Number six of Charles Stanley's 30 Life Principles. Here's number six. You reap what you sow more than you sow and later than you sow. You reap what you sow. All right, now we would all agree that the Bible says you reap what you sow, all right? We would all agree with that. But then they add these two phrases. You reap what you sow more than you sow and later than you sow. What do they mean by that? Like, they're, they're, this is a principle supposedly that, that that's going to control my life. I'm going to reap what I sow, and I'm going to reap more than I sow, and I'm going to reap later than I sow. What? What? How do we understand that? That one I'm a little like perplexed by, and I'm like, I've kind of got a question mark, and I started looking a little bit at the study guide, and I stopped and I said, we'll just work through it together, and I'm a little confused by it. I'm a little confused. I think I know where they're going because I've heard, I've heard things like, you know, uh, somehow like I said, if you reap what you sow, something about sin, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, take you where you never thought you would go and, and keep you there later than you wanted to stay or something along those lines. And um, so I, I don't know if that's the direction they're going with this one, but you reap what you sow more than you sow and later than you sow. We will make a, a we will work on that one next time. What I was going to do today was we were just going to work on number six. The, the original plan when, when the broadcast ended yesterday is I was going to give you five more and just offer some basic overview and criticism. But then when I read number six, I'm like, we're going to have to spend some time with number six. But then when I just read number three, God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. I'm like, you know what? That that one is actually, I think, a, a very good one and could be very encouraging and could be very beneficial. Let's spend some time with that one. So we're just going to spend whatever time we have right now working on that one. Sounds good? So, so I want you to write that one down. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Now, before I even click on it, before I even consider what Charles Stanley has to say in regards to this one, I do think that this is where we have to have a, we got to have an honest conversation, all right? And I say this all the time. I've always, I've always, it's always bothered me that, again, sometimes within church, we always give the church answers. We know what we're supposed to say. We say amen to the stuff we're supposed to say amen to. We, 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 in a sense, we put on our church mask. We put on our church mask. And, but, but sometimes that doesn't always actually represent the reality that we live. So if I look at a Christian and say, hey, I want you to know something. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Most Christians are going to say amen. But what happens when all of a sudden the storm hits? Boom, the wind's blowing 150 miles an hour, right? It's a, it's a massive hurricane. It's a F5 tornado. There's hailstones falling the size of watermelon. In other words, it's like the end of, I mean, when I say the end of the world, it feels like the end of the world. And I'm not speaking of a physical storm. I'm speaking of a metaphorical storm where just everything happening in your life 
be a financial storm, relationship storm. It can be a medical, whatever. And it's just like you're caught in this gigantic storm. Now, I think the reality is we don't always stop and go, well, God's word is an immovable anchor in the the middle of this storm. Sometimes all we see is the storm and we forget God's word. We don't turn to it because we don't want to. We're in pain. We're worried. We're filled with anxiety. We're filled with fear. We're angry. We're upset. We're bitter. We're we're confused. And a lot of times that's not the time you're like, you know what? I know right now the storm's going crazy. I'm going to sit down with a Bible, a notebook, and I'm going to spend some time in extensive Bible study. Doesn't usually work that way. So I think in theory, we believe God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. I just don't know if that always translates to reality and practice. But I'm curious, what is Charles Stanley going to do with this? Let's just take a look. I'm going to, I've got two, I've got the study guide and I guess I've got the book. I don't know. I've got two like books or study guides related to the 30 life principles. And I'm just going to go with the one we have. We may, I may switch over and go to the other one, but we'll just, we'll probably just follow this one through with this, this edition and just see what he has to say. So I'm just going to tap. I'm using a Kindle on my iPad, the Kindle app on my iPad. I'm tapping on the hyperlinks for the table of contents, and I'm going to click on it, and here we go. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm is the principle. And right underneath that, we have Numbers 23 which is interesting. I don't think I would have, I would have almost, if I had a bunch of people here, I probably would have said, what scripture do you think they're going to use? I don't think anyone would have said Numbers 23. Okay, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall not Shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19 is the scripture that is provided here. That is somewhat fascinating to me. All right, so so the principle, this is principle number three. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Again, I think we believe this in theory. I don't know if it always shows up in practice when the real world happens, but I think it's a very interesting and powerful principle. If I was to ask you which scripture are they going to use to kind of support this, I don't know if I would have chosen Numbers 23, 19. Well, let me read it to you again. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Um, Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? I'm assuming they were applying this to, well, the written word of God. In other words, God God is not a man that should lie. So in other words, the Bible, therefore, is not filled with lies. It's it's truthful. And that, uh, uh, he, okay, let me read this again. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. In other words, if God said something in his word, he's not going to change his mind or go back on it. So it's trustworthy. Hath he, uh, hath he said and shall he not do it? If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Now, they are, of course, removing this, well, from the outset, I would be fearful that they've just removed this from any of context. I mean, this 
this th- we have Balak and Balaam here. It seems like they're just removing it from that context. We'll see what they do so, but it's just an interesting verse to go with this principle. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. And I I they go to a verse that I, I don't know. I, I I guess I could see. Yeah, we'll just see. We'll see what they do with it. Let me read it to you again, because I don't think I read it uh, correctly the first time. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? All right, let's see what they have to say here. All right. They start with what they call life's questions. If you've made the decision to seek an intimate relationship with God and obey him, no matter what, you will undoubtedly experience seasons of difficulty and uncertainty, right? Look, no matter what you do in your life, no matter what your relationship with God, no matter, I mean, you are going to face times in your life, difficulty and uncertainty. That is true. But as a Christian, you need to understand that. I think early on in your Christian life, I think this is Discipleship 101. Hey, now that you are a Christian, do not think for one second. Do not believe for half a second that now that because you're a follower of Christ, this is going to keep you from all pain, difficulty, and uncertainty because your life is, you can go through pain, difficulty, tragedy, and suffering as a Christian or not as a Christian, all right? So you just need, I think every new believer has to have that like drilled into their head because I think there's almost this idea, well, hey, I'm believing in Jesus now. Hey, I'm now trying to follow Jesus. It's almost like we have this idea, God owes me now to take care of all these problems. And when everything goes wrong, it's almost like either, well, wait a minute. Like, it's, we almost feel like betrayed. Like God didn't, is not holding up to his end of the bargain. I mean, I'm a Christian now. I'm trying to follow him. And, I'm, and all I'm getting from God is pain and suffering and uncertainty. I think we've got to eradicate that wrong way of thinking and just realize that even as a Christian, your life is going to be filled with trial and tribulation. All right? So we have to be prepared for that. So in other words, storms are coming. Your walk with God is a journey of faith. True. And there will be situations when your trust in him will be tested. Okay, what will you cling to when a deluge of trouble reigns on your life and everything you know to be true seems to be swept away by intense winds of adversity? I think this is a good way to do Discipleship 101. Okay, now you're a believer. I want you to just realize something. In fact, you can almost ask a new believer. It would be a fascinating thing to just, if you had like 15 new believers. Okay, now that you are a Christian, now that you are a Christian, what is your expectation for your life moving forward? And give me the most honest answer you can. And I think a lot of times it's like, I, look, I'll just give you, I, I've told you a story before and many of you know it, but it just fits here. I was a brand new believer. I had not been saved that very long as a teenager. And next thing I know, I'm having all these problems in my family. My family was already a mess. It was already a disaster. There was already crazy stuff going. I won't go through all the horrible things. It was bad. But somehow in my mind, now that I'm a Christian, it's got to get better. Oh, it did not get better. It got worse and worse and worse until I was no longer even living 
with my family. I was put with a different family. I moved in with a different family to get away from all of it. All right. So, all right. So the first thing I become a Christian and things get worse. They don't get better in my life there in my home. All right. That's somewhat hard to deal with. Then number two, I'm a Christian. I'm no longer living with my family. My mother calls me on a Wednesday to say, hey, maybe this Sunday you could come home and we could have a meal together. It sounded like there was like she, it was a possibility to me that she was kind of pursuing some kind of reconciliation. That's what it, it felt like. I'll never know because that was a Wednesday. For all practical purposes, Friday, she was dead. I mean, by, by Friday afternoon, one side of her body was completely paralyzed. Uh, basically, you know, she, she was gone. She had an aneurysm and she was basically gone. It was going to take till Monday before they could declare her to, to, to be dead because they had to run a number of tests and brain scans to see that there was no brain activity. So, so basically, she was gone on Friday. So Wednesday, she calls me. Friday, she's basically dead. So now, okay, I've become a Christian and my relationship with my family completely devastated and destroyed and my mom dies and we never reconcile. And I'm like, so now I I see, so I've become a Christian and I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm trying to live a Christian life and I've stopped doing drugs and I've stopped selling drugs and I've stopped doing all this stuff. And this is what I get. There was a little bit of like, I don't understand what, 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 what is such so great about following Jesus because everything has gotten worse in my life since I started following Jesus. Oh, now, come on, come on. Some of you are like, I can't believe. I bet you you've gone through certain same things. We have to be prepared for this because I think that that there's a, a key element. I think this is a key. To me, if you were to talk about key principles, the key principles is when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean your life here on this earth is going to necessarily get better. It, you, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't make you immune to trial, trouble, tribulation, tragedy, death, disease, people hurting you. It doesn't make you immune to any of the brokenness and the fallenness of the world in which you live. You have to be prepared for that. So the first thing you have to do is, okay, so what is your expectation as a Christian? You've got to almost just basically shatter what their expectation is and let them know storms are coming, trials are coming. And then the next question is, when it all falls apart, when things go horribly wrong and the storms rage, what are you going to cling to? What will you hold on to when the waves of doubt threaten to crash down on your life? I think this is like discipleship 101. What what is your expectation now that you're a Christian? And you've got to correct it and make sure they understand that being a Christian does not make you immune to all of the pain and suffering of a fallen world. Does not. Doesn't protect you from it in any way, shape, or form. That's got to just be drilled into every Christian's mind. Then number two, you cling to God's word in the midst of that difficulty, trial, and confusion. You cling to God's word. You cl- you grab onto it. You hold onto it like it's a life preserver. And life principle number three, according to Charles Stanley, let's repeat it again. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. 
Now, what's interesting here, they want us, according to the study guide here, to go to Numbers 22. It's just, it's, it's, this is just fascinating that this is the passage they want us to look to. It's just, it's just fascinating. So let's, let's go with this. They want us to go to Numbers chapter 22, All right? Numbers chapter 22, all right? All right, Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Right here's where they want us to look at Numbers chapter twenty-two verse one, and the children of Israel set forward, and pitched in the plains of Moab, on the side of Jordan by Jericho, and Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab, verse four, and Moab said unto the elders of Midian, now shall this company lick up all that are around about us as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people to call him saying, behold, this is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth and they abide over against me. All right. So that, so we, we have a situation here where clearly we have some concern. We have some fear and we have some anxiety, all right? So the Moabites are sore afraid. That's You see that in Numbers 22.3. They're sore afraid of the people because there was many, and they were distressed because the children of Israel. They are concerned, all right? So Moab says to the elders of Midian, now shall this company lick up all that are round about us and lick up the grass of the field, all right? And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So Balak is the, is the king of the Moabites. They're all worried. They're all afraid. They are all concerned. He sent messengers, therefore, unto ba- to Balaam. So he sends messengers to get Balaam. Hey, we need Balaam to come here, all right? Um, it says, call him, saying, behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. So... We have Balak that is scared. He calls Balaam and he's like, we've got to do something. He's worried. So he's calling Balaam and saying, there's a problem here. There is a concern. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for there are too too mighty for me. Preadventure I shall prevail and that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot what he whom thou blessest is blessed and he whom thou cursed is cursed. So simply put, hey, we've got a problem here. These Israelites, I'm concerned. I need you to, to curse. I need you to do something to get rid of these people. So he, so Balak contacts Balaam to try to fix this situation because he is concerned. He is afraid. Um, well, we've already read. Um, I see. No. Where did we stop here? I see. Um where we see, okay, verse seven. 
I thought we had read everything we needed to read according to the study guide, but we have not. Verse 7, and the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they came unto Balaam and spake unto the wor- and unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came with unto Balaam and said, What man are these with thee? And Balaam said unto him, said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt who cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Preadventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, that's what they want us to read in the study guide. I am still somewhat perplexed here why they chose Numbers 22. Right? While I'm trying to read that, I'm sitting there thinking, well, why? Why did they choose this passage? Like every verse I'm reading, my mind's going, why did they choose this passage? Yes, Moabites are scared. Yes, they are afraid. Yes, the king of the Moab of Moabites get Balak calls Balaam and wants them to curse the people. God steps in and stops it from happening. But remember their life principle? God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Are they basically, are they, are, is the argument here is that what the king of Moab should have done is turn to God's word in a time of fear and anxiety instead of, well, Balaam and, and someone who's going to use divination or something to try to curse the people of Israel. Is that, is that the logical direction this is going? But this is what they ask. Why were King Balak and the Moabites afraid of the Israelites? Well, because, well, as, as it says in verse 3 through 5, they were sore afraid of the people because there were many, and Moab was distressed because the children of Israel. There's a lot of them, and they feel like that they're just going to come in and use up everything, take everything. And so they're concerned with them, that they're going to come in, take over, take all of the resources. They are concerned. Who was Balaam, and what did the Moabites want from him? Well, if we look at verse 6, um, they, they they say Numbers 22, verse 6. Uh, what do we know about him here? Verse 6, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for there are too many for me. Preadventure I shall prevail, that, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out as of the land. For I, for I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. Balaam is known as the person who can bless or curse someone, and it comes to pass. It happens, and they clearly, he wants, Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel. I think that's a pretty simple setup, pretty straightforward. All right, now they go on to the next part. The Amorites were a great deal stronger than the Moabites. So when Israel took the Amorite city so easily, we can see this in Numbers chapter 21. The people of Moab had good reason to be afraid. So because Israel had come into different lands and in a sense licked everything up, taken everything, I think there were not, not only were there many of them, not only obviously they'd be afraid of them taking up resources. In the previous chapter, in chapter 21, verses 21 through 31, even though the Amorites were a great deal stronger than the Moabites, Israel took the Amorite city easily, so this scared the Moabites to death. Like, here's here's a, basically like an, an invading army. They are a threat. They are dangerous. Now, how did God respond to Balaam? We'll look at verse 12. 
God said unto Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. Okay. Again, this is just an interesting, I'm trying to see how they're going to connect this passage to that principle. I don't know if this, this is the passage I would have chose. I think I see where they're going. We'll, we'll see how they tie this together. All right. Then they want us to read Numbers 22, starting at verse number, Numbers 22, starting in verse 22, right? Numbers 22, verse 22. And God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field, and Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself uh, into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and she, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass and she said unto, and he, and, and she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, because thou hast mocked me, I would there, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, am not I thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Never was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, nay. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and a sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. This story is just so crazy. Verse 32. And the, I mean, this story is, I don't know what, this story is just so bizarre to me. It's one of those stories that you have to look at and go, what in the world is going on? To me, the most fascinating part of the whole story is not even the fact that the the donkey, the ass, is used, is, as it's translated in the King James, that it speaks. What blows my mind is that Balaam just immediately engages in a conversation with the animal. That's what absolutely just like, what in the name of bubblegum is going on? Like, what is, like, the animal just speaks, and he's like, I'm just going to have a conversation with you. You think we'd be like, what? What, what, are, what are you doing? That's just, the whole story is just, Crazy. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Because I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times, unless she had turned away, uh, turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and, and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. All right, just absolute crazy story. Again, I'm still fascinated by why, why have they chosen this whole narrative 
to go with this life principle that, that it's God's word. Remember the principle, God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. I, I, I think I see where they're going with this, but all right, let, let's just continue here, all right? They asked this question, when Balaam disobeyed God, how did God get his attention? Well, we by the talk, talking donkey, okay? Why do you think God used such surprising methods? I am. I don't really know why he's used such surprising methods. It seems so bizarre to me, all right? But he definitely got Balaam's attention, I guess you could say. Verse 35, what was the angel's specific instruction to Balaam? Verse 35, the specific instruction is, and the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. You can go but you will only say what I say. I think I see where this is all going. Verse, uh, then we have uh, Prover- or Proverbs. Numbers 23, 16 through 23. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. This is uh, Numbers 23, 16. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go again unto Balak and say thus, And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, what hath the Lord spoken? And he took up his parable and said, rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should not, should repent. Neither he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The, The Lord, his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, he, he hath as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? When Balaam disobeyed, how did God get his attention? Well, uh, they said verse 28 to 31. Let's see. What scripture do they want us? 22. So they want us to look at 28 to 31. Okay, he gets his attention by using the donkey to speak, all right? Why did he use such surprising methods? We've talked about that. What was the angel's specific instruction? Hey, you you go with them, but you only say what I say. And then why do you think Balaam made the statement he did in Numbers 23, 19? God is not a man that he should lie. Why, why do you think he made that statement? Well, does it say... If we go back to verse 16, the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go again unto Balak and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by the burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, what hath the Lord spoken? And he took up his parable and said, rise up Balak and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. He spoke because this is the words God put in his mouth to speak. So he spoke God's word because that's the word God gave him to speak. I think that makes sense. All right. Now, they say this. 
when Balaam said that God doesn't lie, it means that God will never fail, deceive, or disappoint you. When he says that God never has to repent, it's because God never changes his mind about the promises that he has made, right? How did God fulfill his promise to protect the people of Israel from their enemies? Well, he fulfilled his promise by keeping uh, Balaam from cursing Israel. That, that's how he protected them, all right? Now, it says what it means. God shielded Israel from harm when the people didn't even know that they needed protection. He caused other nations to be afraid of them and even went to unusual lengths to keep Israel from being cursed. God was so powerful and convincing that even the pagan prophet Balaam had to say, I have received a command to bless. He, he has blessed and I cannot reverse it. Numbers 23, 30. The name Balaam means not of the people. Isn't it amazing that someone who had nothing to do with God's people could still recognize the faithfulness and power of God? All right? So they go on to say this. God's word is absolutely true. You may not understand how God is going to bring about what he had promised you, but he is keeping every promise that he has ever made. He will never deceive you or disappoint you, and he will never change his mind about what he's told you. This is just an interesting approach to this principle. Again, the principle is God's word is immovable anchor in times of storm. So I guess what they're trying to say is this. Israel, well, see, I'm trying to apply this to the story because in a sense, it's the Moabites who are in the storm, right? They're the ones who are worried. They're the ones who are fearful. They're the ones who are afraid. Right, And you wouldn't expect the Moabites, obviously, to look to God's word. The Moabites are the cursed people. They're, they're outside of any relationship with God over and over and over again. They're the enemies to Israel. So that doesn't make sense. Israel, Israel, I guess, is in a storm, but they don't even, they don't even know they're in a storm. They don't even, do, are, is Israel even aware that, hey, the Moabites are about to get a, about to curse us and we're going to be in all kinds of trouble? God steps in and takes care of the entire situation. So I guess what they're trying to say is, look at what God did. He made a promise to Israel in the past that he would protect them. And God steps in and protects them because God keeps his word. So when you are in trouble or in a storm, turn to God's word. I guess that's the way they're trying to make this story work. It seems what this, what this feels like. This feels like, and, and this is always a danger. I, I think this is going to turn more into a, hermeneutical, a, a hermeneutics lesson than the way I thought this was going to go. I was really fascinated with what they were going to do with this. Now I'm a little perplexed. And actually, to be honest, I'm a little bothered here. But, that, but hey, we, we keep an eye on what's going on in the Christian world. This is the kind of thing to look for. How do, how do Christian books handle the scriptures? Here's what it feels like. Hey, here's the principle. God's word... And, and I'm going to read, the, uh, read this. So this is almost the way I envisioned this happening. God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. There's my principle. Okay, what scripture could I find that would support or illustrate this principle? Okay, let's go with Numbers 22 and 23. Let's go with Numbers 22 and 23. This somehow supports or illustrates our point. But it's just weird. You pick a story where the people really who are filled with fear and anxiety and worry are the Moabites. 
they're not, they're not going to look to God's word. They're, they're, they're not going to see God's word as an immovable anchor in times of, of storm. So that doesn't really even fit the people who are, quote unquote, God's people, Israel. They don't even realize the storm is going on. And God, in a sense, steps in and acts apart from the, them even knowing God's word, trusting God's word, or looking to God's word. So it really doesn't fit the, the story doesn't really seem to fit the principle. The principle is, hey, when I'm in the middle of the storm, I need to look to God's word. Israel is not looking to God. Israel is oblivious to everything. This is Balak and Balaam. God steps in. God fixes it without Israel turning to his word. I don't know how this story actually fulfills. I don't know how the, why, why would you go to this story? The people in the storm are the Moabites. See, this is the kind of thing that would always gets me in trouble in Sunday school classes or small groups because I would be the one raising my hand going, wait a minute, does, not, does anyone else see a problem here? A- am I missing something? All right, the Moabites are, in, are, are the ones in the storm. They're worried, they're scared, they're fearful. They come up with a plan. Let's find someone who can curse Israel. Clearly, they're not going to look to God's word. Why would they? They're the Moabites, right? Yes? So, so, th- so that doesn't even fit. There's Israel. Israel's just going about their business. They don't even know what's going on. And this entire narrative plays out. Balaam comes along. Okay, yeah, you want me to curse them? I'll curse them. And then God steps in like, oh, no, you're not going to curse them. You're going to bless them. Okay, you have a a talking donkey, you have God steps in, God puts the words in Balaam's mouth. Balaam says, hey, God is a man who cannot lie, will not rip it. In other words, what God says he's going to do, he's going to do. He keeps his word, he's going to keep his word to Israel, he's going to bless them. He blesses them. Great. Now, how does that fit that God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm? Maybe it works this way. See if this works. Numbers 22 and 23 illustrates that God's word is immovable because God is acting upon his word and keeping his word. Therefore, I can trust his word when I'm in a storm. Now, I know, I know that it doesn't show Israel grabbing onto God's word, but I think what it's trying to show, see how God kept his word here, how God's, he acted upon his word. He kept his word. He, he was a man of his word. He did not repent. He kept the word to bless Israel. All of that is true. Therefore, you can trust the word when you are in a storm. I think this is just simply a story to illustrate that God keeps his word, therefore making it a fact that God's word is trustworthy. I think then that's what they're trying to do. I was trying to go, how does this all fit together? Because the Moabites are the ones in the storm. Israel is just oblivious to this. But I think what this is supposed to do, I think what they're trying to do is forget, in a sense, forget Israel, forget Moab, even forget Balaam, even forget Balak. What they want us to do is see God in this entire story is keeping his word, making it that God's word is an immovable anchor. So you cling to God's word. Now, the only problem is it doesn't show Israel turning to God's word, clinging to God's word. They are, they, they just, all of this is happening in a sense without them really even truly know what, knowing what's going on. This is an interesting thing um, of what they have to say here. 
Um, then they provide. I'm just gonna. Uh, I'm just gonna put some. I'm going to read what they call living the principle here because we're almost out of time. Do you now, now please note where they're going to go with this. Do you read and meditate on the Bible every day so that the Lord can bring his word to your mind when you need a reminder of his love and comfort? What do you do when you're experiencing a tempest, a tempest of ad- adversity and need a special message of hope from God to hold on to? When trouble strikes like a tidal wave, God's word can be an anchor of strength, guidance, and comfort to keep you steady. You see why? See, I knew I knew that's where they were going to ultimately go with this. Hey, what you need to do is you need to be studying God's word. You need to be meditating on God's word. It needs to be such a part of you that when the storm hits, boom, you're filled with God's word and you can cling to it. The only problem is the story they gave doesn't really, doesn't illustrate that principle. The story that they gave us in Numbers 22 and 23 simply illustrates the principle that God's word is trustworthy. But even that is not really, it's not even really speaking about the written word, but I I can see how you can apply it because, well, the Bible is the inspired word of God, but okay. But you you see, it would be interesting if you would have picked a story where someone's clinging to God's word in the midst of a difficulty, but okay. Um. What uh, what a st- what storm are you facing today? Are you disheartened by your situation? God will never fail you, and he'll never change his mind about the promises that he has made to you. Therefore, pray. Lay your heart out to, to God and ask for his love and comfort. Ask him to show you his will and lead you uh, to his message of encouragement. Then read his wonderful word. A good place to find assurance is the book of Psalms. Or if you're a new believer, read the gospel of John. All right. Use tools such as the Life Principle Bible to find where in God's word to go for direction for your specific need. You can also ask godly friends what scripture passages have been meaningful and inspiring to them. It's just funny. Hey, hey, when you go, you're a new believer and you need a Bible, get the Life Principle Bible. All right. So they're going to definitely point you to all of their resources. All right. Um, they says, here's some life lessons. Consider God's promises, consider God's promises, your spiritual anchors, all right? So I think that's applicable to the story. God made promises to Israel. He kept his promises. Our our anchor is the promises to God. Just we got to remember, not all promises are for us in the Bible. Some promises are applicable. Some are not applicable. Some are specifically to Israel, not to us. Not only that, some promises are conditional. Some promises are unconditional. We have to be able to identify all of that. But yes, God's promises to us specifically that are applicable are our spiritual anchors. God always keeps promises that he makes and be willing to patiently wait for God to fulfill his promise. And that's how they end this section. That is an interesting That's an interesting approach. I'm sorry it took almost an hour to work through that, but I, well, I, I mean, I, that's what, actually that's what I wanted to do. I, it just completely didn't go in the direction. When I clicked on it and it said Numbers 23, I almost immediately said, ah, let's stop here. Where, where are they going with this? This just seemed like a weird place. So it seems to me that this is what they did in uh, 30 Life Principles for principle number three. This is what their approach was. Hey, God's word is an immovable anchor. Stop. How do we prove that God's word is an immovable anchor? Well, let's look at what God did for Israel in the story of Balak and Balaam. Because God intervened 
when this evil king got this evil prophet to go basically curse Israel, he stepped in because God's word is an immovable anchor. He had made promises to Israel and he was going to keep those promises. So God's word, God's word is an immovable anchor because he does what he says. He does not lie. He does not repent. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And he did it. Therefore, God's word can be trusted. That seems to be what they were trying to do. Now, the study guide does not really ever try to offer, like, how does this apply? They never really do a good job of that. That seems to be. And then, and then, and then in times of trouble, so God's word is an immovable anchor. How do we know this? Because in the story of Balak and Balaam, they would try to go after Israel, but God, God's word is an immovable anchor. And he stepped in and he kept his word because God's word is true and cannot be, cannot be gone against. I, I, that seems to be the direction. And now, and in time of storm, this is not applicable to the story because it doesn't, Israel doesn't even know what's going on. This steps in and says, now it's your job during that time of a storm to grab onto it, to cling it to, in fact, really it's your job to know it before you even get into the storm. Now they do offer some, we didn't have time to look these up, life examples. They have Isaiah 55, Romans 15, um, but I, I don't know, I don't have time to get into those right there. That's an interesting approach, just an interesting approach. And um going to look at something here. I'm just looking at some of the things that we read here. All right. Um, I'm going to look this up in a different version. Give me one second. I'm just going to see if there's one other thing I wanted to add here to this. So it was, again, a very interesting approach. Maybe, maybe you don't think it's that interesting. I just think it's an interesting passage that they chose. And I always get nervous when people just run sometimes to an Old Testament narrative to try to prove a point here. Um, Okay, yeah, I was looking in, in Numbers 22, and I know I should know this, so it's bothering me that I know I, I probably said it incorrectly. It's, uh, where, where is it? Verse, let's see, verse four. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at the time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor. I know I'm saying that incorrectly, but B-R, B-E-O-R, at, A-T, Pethor, P-E-T-H-O-R. I know there's a different way to say that, and I'm saying it incorrectly, and it's bothering me greatly, but hopefully you will overlook that, because I was more focused on, what in the world are they doing with numbers here? So I will just, I'll leave it with this. What do you think? And I know this is kind of going in a completely different direction than we thought, but hey, that's that's I love that's what I love about doing live broadcasting. We never know what direction something's going to go. What do you think in numbers 22 and 23? Numbers 22 23 um 
And I think, did they, I think they just went numbers 22, 23. I'm going to make sure they didn't look at anything else here. There's 22. I think they stopped at 23. Yes. So numbers 22, 23. Here's what I would challenge you to do if you want something to do on a Friday evening. And this is just a, a, an exercise that I think is so important in discernment. Whenever you, sermons do this, Christian books do this, Christian radio, Christian podcast, they, they, they have a principle, they have a thesis, they have an idea, and they'll go to a, a, an Old Testament narrative to support that idea. Sometimes, though, they are putting an idea into a passage that I don't know if that's the purpose of the passage. If we went to Numbers 22 and 23, what do you think would be the main message from those two chapters? What they want us to see in Numbers 22 and 23, what they want us to see is that God's word is an immovable anchor in times of storm. Is that the focus on Numbers 22 and 23? I'm a little... I'm a little hesitant there. I'm I'm trying to see what they're doing, and part of it makes sense to me. Other parts of it doesn't. I just don't know. Is that the main emphasis in Numbers 22 and 23? I'll just leave it there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. They didn't quite go the direction I wanted that to go. I probably should have went with uh, principle six, and we should have looked at that one. But that third one just, I thought, oh, this would be super. I think it is encouraging. It's just, they turned it into, you need, to, you, need, you need God's word. You need to turn to it. You need to cling to it. But really, the story they give kind of actually, to me, is counterintuitive. It counter it. It contradicts that concept. Numbers 22 and 23 is not, hey, Israel, you need to know God's word. You need to memorize it. You need to study it because you've got to hold on to it in the middle of a storm. No, Numbers 22 and 23 is, if God made a promise to you, whether you study it, whether you memorize it, whether you meditate on it, whether you're even looking at it, God's, gonna, God, God's going to keep his word. I, I don't. I, it's just weird that it's a story where God, in a sense, made a promise and kept his promise, irregardless to uh, Israel's attitude towards his word. I mean, they disobeyed God's word and ignored God's word over and over and over again, but God still kept his word. So is it is it really about, is this principle about, hey, God's word is an anchor for you to hold to on into a time of storm? It's God's word is an anchor whether you you cling to it or not in this particular case. And, and, and the narrative that they gave, it seems in some cases it doesn't really support the point they're trying to make. Oh, oh I wish there was a room full of people right now and we could, we could have a, this would get into an interesting conversation, but I, you're not here. So I'm just going to trust that you'll let me know what you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right, we'll be doing more live broadcasting this evening, but we'll stop for now. All right, thanks. God bless.